Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. great in this world, great in the heavens, is a God of consistent thinking, consistent acting, consistent law, consistent promises, consistent covenants. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Scripture says about Jesus, that's true about God the Father. The law is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God gave us the law and the Torah. The law was upheld in the Old Testament, and Jesus came to fulfill this law in the New Testament. What can we see here? We can see that we have a God we can trust because he is consistent. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. God is the truth. What is the aspect about the truth that's so amazing and so pervasive and so expansive? It does not change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God that we can trust. This is the God that we can have faith in and have our hope in. Holy Spirit, I pray today, would you fill us up? and illuminate the word of God to us, to speak to us the words that you want us to hear, what you want us to know, how you want to change us, how you want to humble us, that we might be humbled before you, God, that we might worship you, God, that we might adore you, God, that we might see you as beautiful and magnificent and mighty and awesome. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Last week, we started to look at the story of the flood, starting in Genesis 6. And last week, we read from Genesis 6, verse 9, through chapter 7, verse 5. Today, we'll pick it up in Genesis 7, starting in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as Noah, as God had commanded Noah. Excuse me. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, 
And Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. What do we see here? We see multiple numbers. These numbers will be largely known to us in the church as biblical numbers, representative numbers, symbolic numbers, and we will see these repeated throughout Scripture. The first is two. What is two representative of? I see man and woman in marriage that God brought Adam and Eve together and said that a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. That is a two become one type language. What do we see here? We see again repeated male and female in his calling, not only of the humans, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives for salvation, but also among the animals. Two and two in verse nine, a male and female went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And what's the other aspect about two? In this two becoming one, there is a, in marriage, you've heard it said, there is a representation, there is a two becoming what was the first language? It was that it is a helper. I will make him a helper fit for him. Someone to walk alongside, shoulder to shoulder, help to carry the load and do the work that God has for man. Let alone all of the relational support that a two, that a coming together, that a marriage covenant, two people, male and female in marriage, bring to that relationship and are a support and a strength that they are stronger together than is one. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. I also, in the language of two, see the relationship of God with man. These are two examples that we've seen already in scripture up to uh, or before Genesis 6 at this point that God has this relationship with man. That is a two. There is God and there is man. There is God and there is woman. That's a two relationship. Man does not become part of God like in the marriage relationship of two become one. But what is the two becoming one representative of? Just because a man marries a woman and is joined together in marriage. It's not that he becomes her. It's not that she becomes him. It is a joining together for the purposes of God, that they might be of the same mindset in worship toward God. They still have their individual relationships with God, and that's what God desires above all else, but that the two could become stronger together than they would be individually or separate or on their own or solo or one that they would have a mindset of worship before the Lord, that they would have a mindset of humility before the Lord, that they would have a mindset of serving the Lord, and that this mindset would be shared among them, i.e., that they would be two 
of one mindset, of one purpose, of one meaning, of one reason, of one life to share together, that their lives would mirror each other and mirror the word of God. So in this, when we look back on what I just said, the relationship of two, God and man, it's not that, 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 that man is trying to become of God in this relationship. No, that's harshly warned about, and that's re harshly rebuked in the Garden of Eden. It is because that was a derivation of God's design. No, there is a two becoming one-ish in the God and man relationship, and that is because God calls man to be of his mindset, God's. To have God's mind, God's heart, to have compassion for other people, to be all about, above all things, to be about God and God's glory. This is what God is about, and this is what God calls man to be about. This is what God's law is about. This is why we have God's law. This is why Jesus came to earth to fulfill the law. Yes, it was the sacrifice of his body. It was for the death or the penalty of sin on our behalf for those who believe. But it's also to emulate it is to be representative of God and God's glory. And this is why we were made. We were made for God's glory. So when we're in this relationship with God, God calls us to think like him, to act like him, to speak like him, to speak the word of God, in fact, to love like him, to have compassion like him, to forgive others as God in Christ forgives us. So this number two is really important. Let's look at the biblical number of seven. Seven, you've seen a lot. You've heard it talked about a lot. It's a number representing completeness or perfection. We look all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and the first part of Genesis chapter 2 that he did creation in six days and then rested on the seventh. Or you could say all of the creation process, therefore, included seven days, i.e. the day of rest at the end. There are, therefore, today, we have seven days in a week. That's by design. We are emulating God in this. God's order of creation, the way God set it forth. In Deuteronomy, the people of Israel were to cancel their debts with each other and free their slaves every seven years. We see this number seven. In the Hebrew word for an oath, it's Shaba. And the word for seven is Sheba. Both taken from the Hebrew word meaning satisfaction or wholeness, which is Saba. Here are the similarities there. You might think of Revelation. There are the letters to the seven churches in Revelation in the first part. There are the seven spirits, the seven stars, the seven seals. Again and again and again, seven, seven, seven. The Jewish feasts were organized by orders also of seven. We can see these numbers repeated. We can see that God is stitching something together here. And how about the biblical number for 40? 
Well, it rained on the earth for 40 days during the flood. We read that right here in the scripture. We also know that Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai when he was receiving the law from the Lord. And that may make you think of when Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness in the Gospels. That is intentional. The spies were scouting the promised land for how long? 40 days. And the people of Israel were then sentenced to wander the desert for 40 years because of unfaithfulness. Now, let's look at according to their kinds. Back to verse 14. So Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives had entered the ark. Verse 14, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. So what do we see here in verse 14? We see beast, livestock, creeping thing, bird. And all of this language, this according to its kind, parallels directly back to Genesis 1, 24 and 25. For God says, according to its kind, livestock, creeping thing, beast. Back up a few verses, verse 20 and 21, and God says, according to its kind, about the birds. So we can draw in this, God's preservation of that which he made and declared to be good. He now calls into the ark. This is a parallel. God says, I've created them according to their kind. And now, according to their kind, male and female, I call them, I call you, Noah, to bring them into the ark. Also, I touched on this last week. It took great faith and hope in God, specifically by Noah, to build the ark. Faith was required. How much of life is faith required? Throughout scripture, God is consistent. Faith is required to follow him. God's invitation to man is this, follow me. Follow me. Believe in me. Believe what I've said. Believe in what I do. Follow me. It takes faith to follow God. And scripture says that without faith, no one can please God. So it took the faith of Noah to build the ark and to build not just a boat. You know, I, I, you think of the grand scope of the ark. Now, 40 days of rain on the earth and the rising of the waters, you would probably want more than a simple rowboat for survival because the wet and the cold alone would probably bring you to hypothermia. But he could have built a simpler boat. He could have built a smaller ship. But God didn't call him to build a small boat or a small ship. God was calling these creatures to, of every kind, according to their kind, all over the place. And how long were they going to be inside this ship, this vessel? A very long time, hence the space required. So it was not just that God called Noah to build it, but he had to build this massive ship to the specifications which God required to gather the creatures two by two. And it also required him, yes, faith for Noah himself 
to walk into this ominous arc. And then what happened? We just read it. It was the last line of what we just read in verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. This also took faith. Faith that in this massive ominous ship, it's probably pretty dark. With three levels, timber framed, you have all these creatures. You're inside and you're waiting. And God closes the door. This required faith. That God was in control. That God would do what he said he would do. And in fact, this shutting in would have been confirmation of it all to Noah. And this now was an action that God did. That the Lord himself did. The Lord shut him in. Let's continue. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. How many died, folks? All. All flesh died that moved on the earth. That is outside of the ark. So let us say all but eight. Can you imagine such an event? Can you imagine something to transpire in our world like this? It happened once, and that was it. And we'll continue to read later how God says never again. Not like this. But this was cataclysmic, and it was total. It was utterly complete. God said he would do it, and he did it. He said he would do it in Genesis 6, 7, and then God did. And it's important that we, as God's people, believe that God will do what he says he will do. When he said he would deliver his people away from slavery in Egypt, they had cried out to him and cried out to him. He called Moses and he sent Moses to Pharaoh to deliver God's message again and again and again and again, as God instructed. And after the Passover, after the plague of the firstborn, God, through Moses, led his people out of Egypt. When God said that a Messiah would come to deliver his people, Jesus came. When he said his son would die for the sins of the world, Jesus died. When he raised Jesus to life to testify that death has no power over God himself, Jesus rose. 
And when Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This, brothers and sisters, is our confidence because God always keeps his promises. God was always faithful to his covenants. And though the people sinned, though the people ran from God in unfaithfulness afterward, yet still God was faithful. And don't you want a God who is just and who rules justly? And if God is just, if there is punishment for pursuing a life outside of God, then how will that cause you to live? That same call, that same commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve, gave to Adam and then subsequently to Eve as the next human created. Here is my design. Here is my commandment. Here is my call to obedience. And if you obey me, if you love me, you obey my commandments. If you obey me, then we will have closeness. We will be of one mindset, of one heart. We'll be in that close abiding relationship where we walk together and walk together and walk together. And this is how God had it all designed. And when we fall short, and when we chase other things, and when we're unfaithful, even though God is faithful because he cannot contradict himself, it's broken. The relationship is broken. It's strained. We have additional hardships. Not every hardship is a result of sin, but I will say you have additional hardships when you do pursue sin because God has good things for those who love him. God has good things in relationship for those who are in active relationship with him in this close abiding relationship with him. And because evil is evil, and because people who pursue evil continuously, therefore start becoming more and more evil, and God does not allow evil to have free reign forever, evil must be punished. Evil on its face, even one sin, deserves punishment. And that's why Jesus came, because God had a plan. God had a plan of salvation for even one sin because that causes a break in the relationship with God. That causes separation from God and that deserves death. But in this example of the flood, the world had become so evil. What does it say? Let's go back. Here we are, the start of Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5, let's do verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Great is not positive, folks, in this example. It means massive. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is terrible. This is utter lawlessness, utter wickedness. This is absolute rejection of God. This is how the world had become, and God said no more. God said no more. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth. That's how bad it had got. That's how bad the state of affairs was on 
the earth. And God said, this is not at all what I had planned for man. I want to have this close abiding relationship with man. I want man to see that his greatest fulfillment and his greatest pleasures and his greatest joys and his greatest purpose and meaning in life is fulfilled in relationship with me. And mankind had chased everything else or anything else besides God. And it had gone on and on and darkness had gotten greater and greater and greater. So much so that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He didn't even have a break. You know, sometimes when you struggle with sin, you go back and forth and you love God and you're pulled to sin or, or you give in to sin or you're greatly tempted to sin. And then you go back and you, you repent and you, and you cling to God and you say, yes, God, only in you are the words of life. And I believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And then you're pulled in another way at another time to sin. And then you come back to God and you, and you repent to God and you trust in God and you say, God, I know that you are the creator of all things and the God of the universe. And you are the only one who is worthy. And there is no one greater than you, God. And you are worthy of all the glory and the honor and the power and the might and the respect. And you have this back and forth or this occasional or this problem still with sin. This is not what we read in Genesis 6, verse 5. Because for these people on the earth, every intention was only evil continually. I mentioned before about Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in that story that every man in the city was corrupt, except for Lot. And God sent his angelic visitors, his messengers, to pull Lot out of the city because God was going to destroy it by fire. And God was going to destroy the earth by water because of this. And we marvel at God, who is so great and so mighty that I think, in large part, we don't even comprehend the scale. We can't even comprehend how God can create something out of nothing. How God creates often something out of nothing. Because we only know that the elemental representation, the tangible aspects of how we create things, and we create things from other things. We take elements and we put them together and we create metals and alloys. We take different raw materials and we create fixed goods. We can mold and we can shape. We can heat and we can cool. But God creates out of nothing. And God is a God of justice and that's a good thing. Evil must be punished and that's a good thing because it maintains goodness and holiness. You know, our God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Even when we're unfaithful, God is faithful. 
He's true to his covenants. He keeps his promises and he is close to the brokenhearted. He is close to his children. He is close to those who are humble in their heart. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. We can't always see the whole picture, right? We can't always see that which we desire to know or that which we desire to see. And that's where faith comes in. Scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Is that a paradox? Is it a paradox or is it true? Can you prove faith? Can you prove hope? Well, what do you mean by proof? God calls us to faith. Without faith, you cannot believe in God. Without faith, you cannot please God. Without faith, you cannot serve God. Without faith, you cannot do anything good for God. It requires faith. And faith is in trusting God. Do you believe that closeness with God holds the greatest rewards? Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe his love is greater than anything else in this world. Do you believe through God that like Romans 8 says, all things work together for good? Even when we cannot see it? Even when we cannot say, quote unquote, good, that something good is happening in any given situation. On the darkest days, in the deepest trials of life, in physical suffering, can we say it is, there is a goodness there? Can we say that God is still good, that God is still faithful, that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful even when perhaps you cannot fully see it or see the positives or when we get distracted or when we get misaligned and we think that the Christian life or just life on earth is about goodness I mean, the, the, the worldly definition of the word good. That's about laughter and happiness and, and being happy all the time and being joyous all the time and just having your best life ever and having all the money that you want to have and having the family that you want to have and having the possessions that you want to have. And then it's really all about you. And maybe therein lies the crux that not only will the world be pleased if they're chasing after the things that they proclaim will bring those to pass for them because you can never achieve that. That's an impossible standard in a corrupt world. But if you chase after those things, then how far have you gone from it's all about God? And the one immovable belief since the dawn of time and before before the beginning, before Genesis 1-1, is it is all about God. This is a truth. God says it is about my glory. God says in his word to man, it is all about God's glory. And man's call is to testify to the fact that, yes, it is all about God's glory. And we are to be a light in the universe, not just here on planet Earth, 
Well, we are here on planet Earth, but you know what I mean. That we are to testify to God's greatness. That we are to testify to God's worthiness. That we are to testify to God's glory. That our life on Earth is to make much of God. To find our goodness and our fulfillment and our purpose and our meaning, not in our fleeting desires as humans, but in our ever deep and pursuing desire for God. Even in the trusting, even in the mysteries that we don't understand, say, one passage in the Bible or a different passage in the Bible, there are mysteries in here, full confession, still mysterious to me, but I believe it because I trust God. And being in relationship with God requires you trusting God. And that's faith. God says you must have faith in me to be in relationship with me, to believe me, to walk with me. It requires faith. And then our hope is in God. Not in this world. It's not in other beliefs. It's not in the petty things that this world offers, which are really phantoms or ghosts. You think it's there. Temptation woos you. It calls out to you and it says, come over here. Come over here into this dark corner and I'll offer you whatever you want on a very carnal level. And it's just a phantom. It doesn't fulfill the soul. It doesn't fulfill the mind. It doesn't fulfill the heart. It doesn't fulfill your body. But our hope is in God because God will fulfill when we trust in him, our mind, our heart, our soul, our body. God who is faithful. God who is good. God who knows us completely. Who works all things together for our good because of his love. And that our hope, let us affirm it over and over and over and over again, is in him. We're not looking for anything outside of God. God calls us exclusively to trust in him. You cannot have God plus something else for your hope, for your faith, for your plan. God says, trust in me and me alone. I alone am God. And you will worship me alone. It's the start of the Ten Commandments. No other gods. Nothing else. No one else. But contemporaries of Noah's time were giving into all these other things. They were pursuing anything and everything else with no regard for God. Whereas Noah was faithful. Let's look at one other passage. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Numbers 13, starting in verse 1. I'm going to preface real quick that the Lord was sending this was just before the Israelites were first to enter the promised land. Numbers 13, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. That's key right there. From each tribe of their fathers, God says, You shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, According to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. 
I'll skip down to verse 25. So we sent the spies out, and when they came back, this is their report. Starting at verse 25, at the end of 40 days, there's 40 again, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell on the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell on the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Quick pause. Folks, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron basically continually in the desert. Not continuously every single, continually every single day. But it is often again and again and again. What is the spirit in their heart? It's a critical spirit. Back to verse 2, the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Quick pause. This is the same language that the people, when they grumbled in the desert, would say over and over again. We don't have enough of the food that we want, so let us go back to Egypt. They prayed over and over and over again in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt, for God to deliver them. And when God brings them out, they still have a critical spirit. Oh, Christian, let us not have a critical spirit for our Lord. They wanted to go back to Egypt. The people could have said anything in response here. They had two spies. Okay, there were 12 spies. They had two come back with full faith and belief in God, and they had 10 that gave a bad report and said, no, we should not go up into the land. And then the congregation, millions of Israelites, grumbled and had a critical spirit. What does Moses do? Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephun, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. 
If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us, which just means that it's something simple for them. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then how the congregation respond, folks? Verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me despite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt till now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephun and Joshua the son of Nun, the two spies. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, there it is, forty, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. 
according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephun remained alive. Folks, God is very clear. God is very clear. In him is life. Outside of him is death. When we pursue God, we pursue life. We pursue love. We pursue truth. Outside of God is not love, not truth, not life. God told the people, go spy out the land because I'm give, I will give you the land. And they did not obey. They did not have a heart humble before the Lord. They did not believe God. See, this is the difference. What makes Christianity different? What makes our belief different? It's the object of our affection. It is God. We're not found in the religion. We're not found in the laws, the doctrine. We're not found in being a good person and trying to get ourselves up to the level of God. It's in believing God. This is our hope. This is our trust. This is our faith. Noah trusted God. The spies, Joshua and Caleb, trusted God. Abraham trusted God. The judges trusted God. Joshua trusted God. Jesus modeled for us trust in God. And our hope and our faith and our life is dependent on God, we're fulfilled in God, and we are only found in Him alone. So Holy Spirit, open our hearts to be transformed by God, by your love, by your goodness, by the life and death of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in your wonderful name, amen. Join me next time as we continue with the story of Noah in Genesis 7.